0: appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I mentioned uh, last week that this is the beginning of the practical side of the book of Colossians. So the first two chapters, you remember, as we've gone through them, they are filled with doctrine, they are filled with truth, they are great with all of these high thoughts concerning Jesus Christ and, and God, and the second two chapters of Colossians are filled with really the practical ramifications of this truth. So as we've studied in the book of Colossians, spending weeks in those first two chapters with all of that high language that the Apostle Paul attributes to Jesus, that he is over all things, that he is sovereign, that he is supreme, he's creator, he's all of these great and wonderful things. Last week we saw specifically that Jesus is sufficient. That Jesus is enough for us. He's enough for you. He's enough for me. In other words, we don't need to add things to Jesus in order to please God. We simply need to have Jesus, Christ alone. So we don't need the additions like we saw last week concerning the Old Testament Jewish law, right? We don't need to be adding the feast days. We don't need to be adding these Sabbaths and all of these other kinds of things in order to be approved before God. We simply stand in Christ alone. Paul also talks about these pagan practices. Remember, worshipping of angels and ascetic things like beating ourselves when we have a sinful urge or anything like that. He doesn't want us to add all of those kinds of things to our Christianity. He simply wants us to live in Christ. Alone, And all of this is so important as we consider the sufficiency of Christ that we looked at last week and the supremacy of Christ that we saw are all in chapter one. Those two big key ideas thrust us into the rest of this book, the last couple chapters. It's so key. So we can't lose sight of all that we've learned so far. We need to continue to read the book of Colossians at home and be refreshed in these things of this material and to be reminded that Christ is what the book of Colossians has laid him out to be so far. He is supreme and he is sufficient. And so as Paul begins these last couple chapters, he's really going to put the rubber to the road. He's going to put those things right together so that we can see how all of this doctrine pertains to our lives. And that's what we want to know most of the time, right? Sometimes you hear, man, that, that preacher, he's just way over my head. And usually the, the idea behind that is just the, the theology or the doctrine is just way over our heads, but it's not meant to be. It's meant to be grasped. Yes, we need to work to understand it. But then there is a reason for it. The rubber does meet the road. And so as Paul begins to bring this all together, he takes this doctrine and he puts it to application. And we see why the sufficiency of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, we see why that is all so important. That if all of these great things are true about Christ, and all of these things are true about how he has impacted our lives directly, how then should we live? How do we live in light of the fact that Jesus is sovereign? How do we live in, fact, in light of the fact that Jesus is the creator? And all of these kinds of things. And so as you even scan, maybe even run your eyes through chapters 3 and 4, you see that the rubber meeting the road is putting it mildly. He's going to teach us about putting to death our sin. He's going to teach us about how to put on good works and good actions. He's even going to teach us about music, the context of music in even a worship service. He's going to teach us about our relationships. He's going to talk to us about marriage. He's going to talk to us about our children, how to raise our children. He's going to talk about working our job, all of these things. But before we get there, what he does in these verses we're looking at this morning in 1 to 4, is he transitions into these things by reminding us of a few important pieces of information that we need to be clear on again. And this morning, as you'll see on even the back of your bulletin, He's going to remind us of two realities. He's going to give us two commands. And he's going to remind us and give us hope with two hopes. And so the first thing I want you to see this morning are the two realities that Paul reminds us of. The first one in verse 1. You have been raised with Christ. And the next one in verse 3. You have died with Christ. You remember last week that... Paul dealt with the false information that the false teachers had been spreading throughout Colossae, which is what we saw in chapter 2, a lot of it, verses 8 to 23. However, his basis for addressing the false teachers in chapter 2 is the same basis for which he addresses us now in the beginning of chapter 3. And that basis is the truth of the gospel. And so as Paul begins to turn his writing specifically to these Colossians and specifically to us, the reality that he ultimately reminds them of and us this morning is of our union with Christ in the gospel. And so friends, I I hope that the gospel never gets boring to you. I hope that the gospel never gets dry for you to think about. I'm terrified to think that some of you don't really understand what the gospel is. This most basic, central doctrine to the Christian faith. Maybe you sat for years, or maybe you've been in church for decades and worshiping Sunday after Sunday, and you still don't really get it. Or maybe there are others who, who do grasp the gospel. And I hope that's the case for all of you, that you grasp the gospel, but maybe you don't have an understanding of how it relates specifically to your life every single second. Oftentimes we will say, yes, I believe the gospel, and then we treat it as something that we can move on from. But a person who has found the gospel to be beautiful and something worthy of being treasured, you know that you cannot simply move away from the gospel. That this is something that from the moment of your conversion on, it is consistently central to your life. Because if we truly understand the gospel and we understand how it relates to our lives, then we will realize that we ourselves are inseparable from the gospel story from the second that you're brought into it. For instance, what we find in verses 1 to 3, the two realities of every single person who belonged to Christ. You have been raised with Christ and you have died with Christ. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. So if the gospel story in brief is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus and consenting and believing and trusting in that, and, and that alone brings us to God, then what Paul indicates in these verses before us this morning is that we were united in a death like His and we were raised in a resurrection like His. Where we've seen, you can see all throughout the New Testament, Paul, getting at this point. Look at the beginning of verse 1 again. If then you have been raised with Christ... Now look at the beginning of verse 3. For you have died. And so these are your two gospel realities. This is the basis upon which Paul goes forward in the practical information. You have been raised with Christ. You have died with Christ. So you've been raised with Jesus and you have died with Jesus. So you let that soak in for a minute. Dwell on that. That I have died with Christ. I have been raised With Christ. This is what is known as as, as union with Christ. That you are with Him in a death like His, and you are with Him in a resurrection like His. One author said this our union with the living Christ is the essential truth of our new and eternal existence in a way that gloriously transcends our finite understanding. We are really and truly joined spiritually and bodily, to the crucified, resurrected, incarnate person of Christ. There is no better news than this. And there is no better news than this. This is why we call the gospel the good news. and it's good news. This is the best news. That we have died and we have been raised with Jesus. This is the whole point of the gospel. So the gospel is not some, some set of dry, dusty doctrines. The gospel isn't simply the historical fact that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. There are people who can conscientiously conscientiously say in history, Jesus died, he was buried and resurrected and have no spiritual life. You can know people who will say, yes, that happened. I believe that that happened. But it doesn't have any effect on their life. It doesn't change their day. It doesn't impact their situations. The gospel is what brings us into Christ. And Christ into us. We are unified with Christ because of the gospel. This is the most important thing about you, Christian, that you are unified with Christ. So, what distinguishes you from the rest of the world? What distinguishes you from all the people that you work with and your unsaved family and all of the rest? It's that you have been raised with Christ. It's that you have died with Christ. You have been brought into Him, and Christ has been brought into you. But what a miracle! You view that as a miracle? This is a far greater miracle. I've told you this kind of thing before. This is a far greater miracle than so many of the ones that you see within the Old Testament. You see the ones in the Old Testament, you're like, wow, look at how God parts the Red Sea. Wow, look how he provides manna, look how he provides quail. Look how they hit the rock and the water comes out. And we step back and we're like, man, if God would only do something like that, then I would really, really, really know that he believes. But the real true miracle is that when we see all of you who are here this morning who were once dead and now you're spiritually living, you're alive. That is the real miracle. The people here who God has made come alive, that's an even greater miracle than Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Because that's a physical resurrection. Who cares in some ways, right? I want to see the spiritual resurrection. I want to see the lives changed. And that's what the gospel does for us. We are unified with Christ. an incredible miracle that we have died to sin, we have died to ourselves, we have died to the opinions of the world, and we could have been raised to walk in newness of life, we have been. I mean, could there be anything more important, anything more miraculous? Could there be anything more important for you to understand than how the gospel impacts every second of your life? So when you're confronted by sin, do you have to sin? When you're confronted to to, to do something that you know would displease God. Do you have to do that? As a Christian? No. But why? Not because it's in your own willpower. But because of what Christ has done in you and through you. As a result of that death and resurrection. You don't have to sin. So you're at work and you're tempted to fudge the numbers. Or you're tempted to tell a lie. Or you're tempted to cheat in school. Or you're tempted to lust. Or you're tempted to filthy language. Or you're tempted to immorality. Or whatever it is. Do you have to do those things? No. Because you have been raised with Christ. You have died to your sin. You have the Spirit of God working His gospel within you. To perfect you and to make you more and more holy. You have that gospel within you that reminds you consistently of how to properly live. All of us are tempted in various ways, aren't we? Every single one of us. I could have a conversation with each of you and just say, what is your biggest temptation? And there will probably be a lot of of different ones that each of us have. You might not struggle with some of the things that I struggle with. I struggle with what you might not struggle with. We all have various temptations and struggles and areas of sin that we often fall in. But think about those specific temptations that you may have. And you're approached with an opportunity to sin. And you're thinking, I can go into this, or I could not, by the power of God. Here's the edge. What pushes you across the edge? And what keeps you away from that edge? I think of my own life and the times that I have success against sin is when the Spirit of God reminds me of what He has done for me in Christ. It's never willpower. I'm just going to make this happen. I'm not going to do it. It's when God, the Spirit, kind of swoops you away from that edge. Reminds you what has been done for you in Jesus. That you have died to sin. You don't need to live in that. That you've been raised to walk in newness of life. To go towards holiness, not toward that edge of sin. It is much harder to sin when the Spirit brings to mind the extent to to which Christ had to go to bring us to God. When you consider His death and when you consider His burial and resurrection, it is much harder to sin when the Spirit reminds you that you are united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. I don't know how non-Christians do it. I don't know how they go through their lives without knowing that their sin has been dealt with and that they're able to live in victory through Christ. I don't know how Christians who don't understand the gospel do it. That they have a, a knowledge, a, a certain level of assent to say, yes, I believe that what Christ has done, that it's all for me. But beyond that, there's hardly a grasp of how it impacts their daily life. I was talking to a couple of people the other day, unsaved people that I've been trying to get to know specifically and trying to spend time talking with them. And for the first time, I was able to, to bring the, the things of God up. And they were kind of asking about it. They know my pastor and so forth. And in the brief time that we had, I just tried to explain to them that everything that happened 2,000 years ago, all of those things that Jesus did with dying on the cross and resurrecting, it has to mean something right now. Otherwise, we are wasting our time. And so when I was speaking with them, they, they showed me that they had this massive disconnect between going to church on Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That it's all just kind of two distinct worlds. That those who maybe have enough willpower, they'll go to church on Sunday morning and do that thing. But the rest of the week is just a wash. It's just, you just do whatever you want. That there's this massive disconnect between worship and the other six days of the week. And the truth is, the gospel, what Christ has done for us, has to mean more than coming to church on Sunday. But it must not be less than that But it has to mean something when Monday comes. It has to mean something when suffering comes. It has to mean something when trials come. It has to mean something when our kids turn their back on Christ. It has to mean something in all of these moments. In every moment. The truth of the gospel. Our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It has to be so much more than we make it out to be. So Christian, if you have died with Christ. And you have been raised with Christ. Then you are unified with him. He is in you. You are in him. So live like. But there's a further point I want to make in light of the fact that we have been raised with Christ. Why don't you turn over to the book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So a couple books back. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. I have you turn over to this passage a lot. uh, But there's a specific point that I want to show you of what Christ has done for us. Ephesians chapter 2. Very interesting in regard to the fact that we have been raised... Where does this extend to? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So he acknowledges what he does in Colossians, right? That we have been raised with him, but he goes a step further. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Try to wrap your mind around that. So you have been raised with Christ and you have actually been seated in the heavenlies. So as a result of being resurrected, we are united with Christ in that resurrection and in some way we are with him in the heavenlies even now. So those of you who are believers are even now seated there, ruling and reigning with Christ. Notice specifically the language, you are seated When you're doing a job, construction or some kind of active job, not like a computer job where you're always sitting, but a construction job and it's three in the afternoon and you're sitting down, the implication is what? That your work is finished, that there's nothing left for you to do. And this is the reality for the Christian. As far as salvation goes, there's no more work for you to do. All of that has been accomplished Jesus has done all the work required to gain it for us. So you're in the same position as Jesus. Paul says here that Jesus is seated and so are you in the heavenlies. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks to this. It says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So after completing the redemption for our sins, Jesus ascends up into heaven. And what does he do? He does something that a Jewish priest on earth could never truly do. He sat down. Our great high priest ascends to heaven and he sits. No more work to accomplish. And as those who are called by Peter, Christians are called, we call it the priesthood of all believers. And Peter calls Christians a royal priesthood. And so there we are. Again, unlike any kind of Jewish priest throughout history. As a royal priesthood, sitting down in the heavenlies with a great high priest. No more work to do. Nothing to accomplish for redemption. Simply seated with him. In the heavenlies. Don't tell me a truth like this. Does not impact or have any bearing on your life. It has to do. It has to have everything to do with the here and now. And one more point on this. And then I'll connect it more explicitly to the passage. Uh, Long distance relationships are terrible. Aren't they? Some of you have been in long distance distance relationships. And they were horrific. And some of you uh, have been uh, in them. And I've told you this before, but there was a time in college uh, when my wife broke up with me. I forgot my hanky, but my wife broke up with me in college. She broke up with me for about nine months until I straightened out, and the summer part of that time, I was in Pennsylvania and she was in Wisconsin. And it was during this time when I was uh, in Pennsylvania, we we were allowed to write letters to each other, we were allowed to talk once on the phone, once a week. Yes, we we did that. It was more of a courtship so her parents were heavily involved. And it would be accurate to say that during that summer my heart was not in Pennsylvania but my heart was in Wisconsin. My affections, my thoughts, my motivations all of it was in Wisconsin. Like Tony, ben- Tony Bennett famously sang I left my heart in San Francisco. Right? Laughter and some of you know what that feels like, to have your heart be somewhere else. Your affections are somewhere else. And in a small way, that helps to illustrate what the Christian life was like. Our bodies are here on earth. We have work to do, but, and we have families to care for, and all of those things that there are burdens here to handle. But in a very real sense, our hearts and affections and our thoughts and motivations, all of it is in heaven. And so in light of the fact that we have been raised with Christ, in light of the fact that we have died with Christ, in light of the fact that we are even seated now with Him in the heavenlies, what are we to do? So our heart is in heaven, our affections are there. But how do we live in the here and now? How do we apply this? And so here are Paul's two commands where they come into play. First, in verse 1 again, he says in that second part of it, seek the things that are above. And then in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things below. And so what Paul does is he roots his commands in the realities of having died with Christ and having been raised with Christ. In other words, Paul doesn't just give us blanket commands without the power to obey, okay? He doesn't just say, go do this, do this, do this, do this, like you might get on a job. Here's your list of things that you have to go do for the day and just get it done. What he does is say, here are your two commands, but this is how you do them, in the power of the gospel. And so these things are, set your minds on the things above and to seek the things that are Above. This is so key. So the first command in verse 1. To seek the things that are above. This is a present command isn't it? He's saying uh, in the present. Right now. What are you to be doing? What is God's will for your life? To seek the things that are above. Jesus gives us a piece of this. In the sermon on the mount doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Where he says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom. Seek His heavenly kingdom. One commentator said it well. Believers seek the things that are above by deliberately and daily committing themselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. Sometimes you'll hear a a well-meaning Christian say something like, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that? Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. And I think that Paul and Jesus himself would radically disagree that Christians should be heavenly minded. They should be so heavenly minded and enthralled with God and enthralled with Christ and His holiness and sovereignty and all of those things so that they can be of some earthly good. You think of the people in the Bible or church history or people that you have even known in your own life. The ones that have a deep sense of awe and wonder for the great things of God. Those are the kinds of people you want to emulate, right? Right? Those are the kinds of people you say, I would just love to follow their example. Maybe former pastors or loved ones who were thrilled with Christ and treasured Him supremely, that it was the spiritual things that mattered to them, not the physical things. Or you think of people throughout church history, like the Charles Spurgeons and the David Livingstons and the Amy Carmichaels and thousands and thousands upon pastors and missionaries and godly people that the history books have no idea about. They had such a heavenward mind. Think of the Apostle Paul who's in a prison cell. He's writing these things to the Colossians. He's a man so in sync with what Jesus wants for him. He is a man who truly loved God with all his heart. It was as though he lived with his mind in heaven and his hands were on earth to serve. I love the phrase at the end of Hebrews 11 where it runs through all of these great Old Testament characters and how they lived for God. And then it kind of goes into nameless ones. It talks about how they were beaten and how they were persecuted for the sake of Christ. And at the end of Hebrews 11, he says, of whom the world was not worthy. Isn't that a great phrase? That there are simply those who have lived in incredible faith in God, of whom the world was not even worthy. And every so often, you run into a Christian even now who has been through the ringer, whom God has drawn so close through trials and seasons of affliction and pain, and they have such a deep and abiding affection for God, their minds are in heaven, and you just say, the world is simply not worthy of that person. To even be in the presence of someone who, like the song, one songwriter says, their feet are on the ground, but their heart is in heaven. The truth is, it is the people who are earthly minded that are of no heavenly good. And this is exactly where he goes in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 2. Look there again with me. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. So seek what is above and set your minds on the things that are above. So two positive commands and then he attaches to the latter part of verse 2 a negative command, not on things that are on earth. And this is such a struggle for us, isn't it? Because we are earthly creatures. That we live for the here and now. And so we're tempted to put so much stock into earthly things. And it's not that earthly things don't matter because we are instructed, instructed on how to handle these things. But Paul's point is that our minds, other translations say our heart and our affections should not be set on the things that are on earth. Now how many of you can honestly say that your mind is not set on the things of earth. How many can honestly say, my mind is completely set on the things that are above? You want some stress relief? You want some release from anxiety and worry? Get your mind off the things of earth and get it to the things above. Set your mind on what is eternal. Worry and anxiety, all of that comes so often when we're consumed with worldly things. We're consumed with our bank accounts, consumed with our schedules, consumed with our jobs. And if you don't have a heavenly understanding of all of these things, your tendency is going to be to worry. If your mind is set on earthly things instead of heavenly things, you're going to be anxious. Beyond that, we make bad decisions in life oftentimes because we don't have the foundation that is proper. We don't have a a foundation and a consistency of setting our minds on the things above. Our foundation is setting our mind on things below. And so we act according to that. We pursue earthly things in our mind because that's what our whole foundation and basis of life is. I read such a probing question this week from Robert Murray McShane. And I've told you about him a little bit before, but he lived like 250 years ago or so, 1700s. A few hundred years ago, and, and he, he was only 29 when he died and he lived such an incredible life and even at 29 or before, he said this, what has the world done for you that you love it so much? What has the world done for you that you love it so much and you give yourself so much to it? Who cares about the world? I mean, don't you know that the world and everything, in it, it's just all going to burn Literally, God is going to set it on fire and burn it up. Don't you know that everything that we accumulate in life is going to corrupt, which makes so much sense again in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There it is again. Have your mind up in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so that's the basis of that thought. With the foundation and the earthly things, oftentimes our treasures are right here on earth, and so that's where our mind is. But if our treasure is in heaven, then our mind and our mindset and our thinking and our affections will all be heavenward. It's the same concept that where your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to be. Is it on earth with stuff or everything else, or is is it in heaven? Is your treasure on earth with things, or is it in heaven where Christ is your great treasure? So again, what has the world done for you? that you love it so much? Why is it that you set your mind on worldly things? Another question could be, did those things, did earth die for you? Did earth and the things of this world love you so much that they died for you? Or did Jesus come and love you and die for you? Set your mind on the spiritual, heavenly things. I think the hymn writer said it well. Well, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The two realities that he's shown us are contained in the gospel. We have been raised with him and we have died with him. The two commands in light of the gospel are to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of the world. But then Paul gives us two hopes. He gives us a hope for the present and he gives us a hope for the future. Look with me at verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the first hope is a present hope. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? Your life is hidden with Christ and God. What would be the ramifications of that? I think in part it definitely speaks to the preservation of the Christian. That once you're saved, you're always saved. That you cannot lose your salvation. Do not buy into that notion that you can lose it. If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are hidden with Christ and God. And we've talked a lot about union with Christ earlier. And even now, Paul still has that in mind. We are unified with him and we are with him. But not only are we with him, but we are with him in God. And so we are in Christ, and we are with Christ in God. It's like those Russian nesting dolls. You know what I'm talking about? Those kind of big like this, and you break it apart, and there's another one inside, you break it apart, another one, and on and on you go until it's like this little thing at the end. And that's kind of what it is like to be with Christ in God. You're, here's you, you're with Christ, You're in God. So you are a Russian nesting doll, gospel speaking. With Christ in God. What would this mean from God's perspective? Not trying to be God, but what would that mean from his perspective? Trying to understand a little bit of that this week. That I'm hidden with Christ in God. And I can study that and think through that and grasp some of it. But what does it mean from God's perspective? That I am hidden with Christ in God. I don't know. But how much hope and security should a thought like this give you? God calls you to be a missionary in a dangerous place. What are they going to do to you? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Satan and his forces come and they throw all kinds of temptations at you like a pride of lions coming for their prey. What are they going to do? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. To be hidden with Christ and God is to be shielded and protected from anything and everything that is out there. And this is the present hope that you have as a Christian. But notice the future hope in verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears. Then also you will appear with him in glory. When Christ who is your life. I think what Paul is meaning by. He is your life. It's not so much like. A boyfriend and a girlfriend, you're my life. I don't think it's like that. I think what he's saying is that our life, because we have literally died, he is the life that lives within us. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But what is it? It's Christ who lives in me. And so the life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So it's Christ who lives. We have died. It's Christ who lives within us. What a truth that is. Christ is our life. But He goes on with that that future hope when Christ who is your life appears. Now that's a hope. Christ is going to appear. He is going to descend from the clouds. The heavens are going to open. That trumpet is going to blast And there he is. There he is in his beauty and his glory. And I don't often wake up in the morning and my feet hit the ground and it's time to get on with the day. I don't often think today could be the day. But it could be the day. He could come. Today could be the day when those heavens open and we receive Christ in his presence and we are going, according to this verse, we are going to appear with him in glory. Nobody excited about that? Anybody excited about that? That is awesome. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him. Well, what does that mean? Right now, Jesus is in heaven, and He's waiting for God the Father to say, Jesus, go on, and He's going to come down, and we're going to appear with Him in glorified bodies. That's what he says there. We're going to appear with him in glory. Jesus, even now, having a glorified body upon his resurrection. All your pain gone. All your sin totally eradicated from you. And you appear with him in glory. A quick word about that. Sometimes we have this idea of the future and heaven and God ascending, Jesus ascending and taking us to, his own, to be his own. A couple things. We think that that's scary. You know, a lot of children have been scared by certain theologies in regard to Christ's coming. But then also, a lot of us kind of have the notion that it's just going to be this, like, airy substance, right? That we're just going to kind of see through each other or whatever else. We're all going to be sitting on a a, a cloud and just kind of all of a sudden we're all professional harp players and it's just going to be nothing but harps in heaven. I hope there's drums and guitars in heaven. I hope so. But we kind of have that idea. But we're going to appear with Him specifically in glory. I just think that it's going to be so much more real. When time isn't fleeting anymore, right? Sometimes you spend an evening with somebody and just the time just goes by. and It's like, what what happened? But when you're with Him and you're outside of time forever to enjoy Him. And just experience that moment in its fullness forever. And not grow old and just be. I can't wait. And one day he is going to descend from heaven. And we're going to appear with him in glory. Is that not a wonderful hope that you have? Isn't it wonderful to be unlike so many people in the world today. Where we walk out of this building. Come on Lord. Maranatha. Even so Lord. Please come. It's going to be wonderful. And so we live suspended between these gospel truths. We have died with Christ and we've been raised with him. Yet we wait for his appearing. Where our body and soul are united. And we appear with him in glorified bodies. And until that day when he appears in glory. What do you do? You set your mind on glory. You set your mind on the things above. You don't seek the things that are below. It's all above. And we live with the hope that our life is hidden with Christ in God and that he will return to us and to bring us to the place where he has called us to set and seek in the first place. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege of these truths and to know that we have died with you and we've been resurrected with you and been told to seek and to set our minds on the things that are above and even the hope that we have now that our life is hidden with Christ and the hope of the future. When you appear, we will appear with you in glory. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. We stand with me as we sing. Morning actually, that both of them reference a couple of the lines. So, uh, before the throne of God, in the third verse, it says, My life is saved with Christ on high. And then the second song is, All I have is Christ. And that chorus, Hallelujah, All I have is Christ. Let's sing it again.